0: So we have three weeks left in our Leviticus series that we started like four years ago. And um, uh, finishing that out, um, this Sunday we're going to talk about Leviticus chapter 24. Try to find some of God's love in a particularly brutal uh, passage in Leviticus. So we titled today Love and Beatings. Next Sunday is Easter, so we're going to celebrate the resurrection, get back to Leviticus for Mother's Day and talk about the lamp that God had very specific instructions for. And then we'll close out the series on May 15th by kind of talking about how God's plan uh, wove together through the book of Leviticus, how it all weaves around Jesus and his plan for you. And, and that will be that. Big Cleve will be here next on July 17th, so set the date. Cleve is one of the guys that we support in Cleveland who's starting a new church in, in inner city, and so July 17th will be his next day here. So uh, keep that in mind. All right, uh, I want to give a quick plug for this book right here. Um, it's called The Year of Living Like Jesus, and it's by Ed Dobson. And uh, Ed was a, a pastor in Michigan, And he now has ALS, so his body is quickly deteriorating, not a lot of time left. Um, He decided to take one of the last years of his life and live like Jesus would live, and by that he meant observe all of the laws of the Old Testament. So as we read through the book of Leviticus with all the, the, the crazy uh, laws and customs and things like that, he set out to do this as average Michigan American guy. And it's just his journal. So it's day one, day two, day three, all the way through the 12 months of the year. And it's been fascinating to read his struggles with this Old Testament stuff. And it's really brought the book of Leviticus to life, and it helps you understand how one of, one of the things the Apostle Paul says God wanted to do through the book of Leviticus was to help us realize what it would really mean to live completely holy according to God's standards and how impossible that is for humans. So then we could appreciate the grace that Jesus came to bring. And this is really coming to life through this book, so I just want to, to plug that. And again, The Year of Living Like Jesus, very easy read, um, you know, comical, yet very serious at it points too. So take a look, uh, check that out if, you, if you're looking for a nice uh, summer read this year. It goes along well with the book of Leviticus. Okay, if you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, open up to Leviticus 24, If you don't have a Bible but would like to follow along, there are some stools in the back right as you come in. You can grab a Bible if you want, uh, if you forgot yours, or if you don't have one. So we are going to look at chapter 24, starting in verse 10, and I'm going to read, I'm going to start in the middle, actually. I'm going to start in 17, and we're just going to cover this, probably one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, uh, just kind of a quick quote. I want to cover it. I don't have time for it, so we're going to blitz through this. If anyone takes the life of a human being, he must be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, whatever he's done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he was injured, or as, as, um, as he has injured the other, so he will be injured. So we hear eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And that often sounds like a recipe for revenge, doesn't it? Because we are a people who love revenge. But what, When again, I'm going to be real quick with this. What we learn in Leviticus is this is not a recipe for revenge. Rather, it does two things. Okay, first of all, we see in Exodus chapter 18, that there was an intentional justice system already in place. And it was understood that if you had a domestic dispute, you would go to the people set up to judge. And if it was very complicated, you would go to Moses himself. So eye for eye, tooth for tooth was not a recipe for domestic revenge. It was already established that you didn't execute... Revenge or judgment on your own, you went to the system that God had set up. You can also read about in the New Testament in Romans 12 and 13. But the one thing that eye for eye, tooth for tooth did was it kept things from escalating. Because when we try to work things out as humans, it's rarely eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's you stole my tomatoes, I'm going to slash your tires. You slash my tires, I'm going to shoot your dog you shot my dog, I'm going to burn your house down. And then you get into a fight and somebody gets killed. And so you trace a murder back to tomato theft. And what we see in eye for eye, tooth for tooth is God setting up a system to keep that kind of human escalation from happening creates a fair court system. But remember, that we have to take eye for eye, tooth for tooth in light of all kinds of other scriptures in both the Old Testament and the New Testament and understand that God says vengeance is His and He has set up government to carry out His justice. That's straight out of Romans 12 and 13. So followers of Jesus do not quote eye for eye, tooth for tooth as a recipe for revenge. Followers of Jesus love even our worst enemies, but we go to courts and, and, and rely on God and trust God with revenge or justice. We don't take it into our own hands because of Leviticus 24, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So that's all I need to say about that. Let's move on to what I think is the more important of the, of the two stories in here. Verse 10 And again, we're going to look at these and try to find a loving God in the midst of a story of brutality. Now, the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father went out among the Israelites. Let's talk about this for a minute. So the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt for 430 years. And one of the things I appreciate about the Bible is that as it tells the story, it includes real-life stuff that would naturally happen. So as a result of Egyptians and Israelites mixing together as slaves and owners, there's a relationship that happens between an Egyptian man and an Israelite woman, and they have a child together. Now, there's reason to believe that there were Egyptians who made the trip out of Egypt with the Israelites. They saw the God of the universe, or they had a mixed relationship going, and they end up making the trip and becoming a part of the Israelite camp, worshiping God. This son is among the Israelites, and a fight broke out in the camp between him and an Israelite. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name <coughs> with a curse. So they brought him to Moses. Remember, they had the justice system set up, and Moses tried the most um, significant cases. His mother's name was Shilamath, the daughter of Debri, the Danite. It's very important that you know that. They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. So there, there, there's not a lot of precedent yet. And they put this man in custody. They take him to Moses. He goes back to jail while Moses prays to God, searches the law, figures out what he's supposed to do with this guy who blasphemed and cursed the name. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, if anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord... And when we see that capital L-O-R-D, that's the Tetragrammaton. And that is the name of God, Yahweh, written in Hebrew, but translated Lord. So anyone who blasphemes the name of Yahweh must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him. Whether an alien or native born, when he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. So precedent's going to be set here. Down in verse 23, Then Moses spoke to the Israelites, and they took the blasphemer outside the camp and stoned him. The Israelite did as the Lord commanded. So we have this story of this fight that breaks out, and this guy says some things he shouldn't say, and the punishment is Drag him outside the camp, take large stones, and throw them at this human being until he is dead. Capital punishment. Now, Leviticus and all of scripture speaks of a loving God, a forgiving God. We see a glimpse in the New Testament. We talked about this, I think it was last week or the week before in John chapter 8, where they want to stone a woman for adultery, and Jesus intervenes. He says, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. And they all leave because they all realize. So he stops the stoning. So how is it that we see this God in the Old Testament who says, oh, you said some things you shouldn't have said. The punishment is death by stoning. Doesn't necessarily seem to fit a loving, forgiving, merciful God. But I want to break this down a little bit and maybe we'll get a clearer picture of, of what's happening here. So if we look at the word blasphemy, because the crime was blaspheming and cursing the name. And if you look at this Hebrew idea of blasphemy in the Old Testament, in ancient times, we aren't talking about, you know, George Carlin or Monty Python. We are talking about using your words to shred to tear apart in as negative ways as possible. This was a big deal, negative thing. An equivalent example might be, so you're frustrated with Polaris, so you don't really care for me, and so you call some new families at Polaris and say, hey, I just want you to know that Alex Poindexter is a child molester and he practices the black arts in his basement. I've seen this. Just want you to know that. Click. Okay, you are at that point using your words, doing anything that you can to tear apart my reputation. That's the idea of blasphemy. That's how egregious this kind of a thing was. That's a a word that goes beyond a, you know, you're at the office and the printer won't work and, and a GD flies out or a JC flies out. We're not talking about that kind of... Use of the name of God. We are talking about everything in your power to just shred. Then we move on to the idea of curse in the Old Testament. And this has in the, the idea of, of, of translating that Hebrew word, the idea of piercing or trifling or trivializing. So he's using his words to tear apart you know, you just get this, this picture of this guy who just deep down with his soul is trying his hardest. You know, it's tough when you're upset with the God of the universe to do anything. You know, how do you fight God? So he uses his words to do anything he can, to trifle, to trivialize, to tear apart. And then we see the idea of the name. And if you looked in your Bible, the capital N, there was a capital N for name. And we see this idea in ancient times of the idea of a name going far beyond just a a thing to call something. So like our firstborn son, we named him Spencer because we liked how it sounded. And that's it. Now, Elijah... We named Elijah because of the biblical character of Elijah, you know, passion for God, uh, zeal for, for God's, uh, you know, the pursuit of God, things like that. So we went more for the essence of Elijah than we did for Spencer. In the Old Testament, you went for the essence. Name was like your reputation, your essence, your character, your nature. The idea uh, today is, is branding, In uh, the 90s, the idea of branding with products came out, and it's kind of transcended the people. So last summer, when LeBron decided to take his talents down to South Beach, we heard a lot of commentators saying, how will this affect the LeBron James brand? When Tiger Woods had his mess a, a, a couple of Thanksgivings ago, how many millions of dollars will this cost the brand of Tiger Woods? So when we talk about name, capital N, we're talking about the brand, the overall reputation of God. And what this man did was use every, you know, he used every fiber of his being to try to above and beyond tear apart the reputation, the name of God. So we're not talking about he was in a bad mood and he said some things he regretted. This is intentional, forceful rejection of God. Now, turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. This is before the Israelites were freed from slavery. Moses is standing before Pharaoh, and God has given him authority and power to kind of be the uh, spokesperson for the plagues that are about to break out against the Egyptians in order to free the Israelites. Down in verse 20, 720. Moses and Aaron... "...did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials, and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt." And there were frogs and there were flies and there were boils and the firstborn of every living thing died. God showed his power. In fact, I don't think in all of human history there was ever such a, con, such a um, concentrated display of God's overwhelming power than in the months of the Exodus when God freed his people. So this man that cursed and blasphemed the name, had seen with his own eyes God's awesome power on display. Exodus 14, a couple chapters to the right. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, the Red Sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down on the, with the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw them into a confusion. So they're pursuing the Israelites across the Red Sea. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. That Yahweh is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and and, uh, at daybreak the sea went back into its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back, covered the chariots and horsemen, and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. So you get the imagery of God creating a driving wind that dried up the ground, the the, the riverbed. And there's a wall of water on the right and the wall of water that stretches to the sky on the left. And this man walked across to freedom in the middle of one of the greatest displays of power ever. And he still blasphemed and cursed the name. Turn to Exodus chapter 20 you're an Israelite and you have just seen God's power on display. You've seen the heavens opened essentially and the might of the God of the universe on display like the 4th of July. God speaks to you and he gives you some boundaries for your life. You're going to take them seriously? I think we all would. One of the first things God says, You shall not misuse the name of Yahweh your God, for Yahweh will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So we see a man who has been in the middle of an awesome display of the power of God. He has been strictly. He has been told plainly, do not misuse the name of Yahweh. And in spite of all that, we see such obstinance that he would look a powerful God who loved him enough to free him, look this God in the face, and blaspheme and curse the essence of this God, It's as if he was standing in the middle of God's plan for his life and rejecting it. He missed the main thing. And God seems to say, when you miss the main thing, there is no reason left to live. And rather than leave the poison in the camp, he removes the poison as an example for all. When you miss the main thing, When you miss a relationship with God and reject all He's done for you, there's not much left. Now, if you look to Matthew 12, Matthew chapter 12, we will see this basic theme continuing in the New Testament. (coughs) Matthew 12, 1,500 years later, Jesus says this, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus told his disciples that the role of the Holy Spirit in the world was to convict us of our sin and essentially to point people to Jesus. You're here today because the Holy Spirit has drawn your heart toward God. Anything you have going right in your relationship with God is a part of the work of the Holy Spirit. So we can speak words against Jesus... We can speak words against God. We can sin however we may in this world. And all of those things are forgivable. But if we reject the work of the Holy Spirit and his pull for us to link with Jesus, if we reject that, then we have rejected our purpose for living. We have stared the main thing in the face and said, I don't want that. That's why Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. It's all or nothing. To not decide to follow Jesus is to make a decision. If you say, I don't know if I'm ready yet. You're making a decision and that is rejection. The Holy Spirit is at work in your life and in mine, pulling us toward Jesus. And when we reject that, as far as God's concerned, that is unforgivable in this age and in the next age. A loving relationship with God is the main thing. It's why you were made. It's why I was made. It's everything that God has been working to accomplish for thousands of years in your life and in mine. And when we stare Him in the face and reject Him, that is unforgivable. And in the case of this man in the Old Testament, He forfeited His right to live for that. And we forfeit our right to eternal life or our privilege to eternal life by rejecting the main thing. So... Take away. There is a loving God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And that loving God has gone above and beyond, above and beyond, to take away our spiritual oppression and our spiritual slavery and lead us into freedom. But if we reject that gift, that is unforgivable. So application, I hope that you will look at this and remind yourself that the main thing in your life is your relationship with God. And anything that stands in the way of that relationship with God should be taken outside and stoned. We need to get rid of of everything that separates us from the main thing because there is nothing left to live for.